Hey guys, it's Destry and Katie, and we are the Practical Idealists, and we had the great pleasure last night of seeing the new Halloween. Was it really a great pleasure, though? Well, we'll get into that. By the way, there's going to be spoilers. So, the first scene with the interviewers coming into Smith Grove, <clears throat> did it feel like the directing was just a little bit odd in that? Well, what it felt like to me was that it wasn't actually part of the movie. It kind of felt like a separate little movie in and of itself to release before the actual movie. And that the actual movie started after they rolled credits. Mm. Like, I don't know what that was, but it didn't feel like it actually belonged in the movie. It was cool, but it was also very weird. Well, I mean, from kind of looking at some reviews and reading some interviews, it sounded like they were kind of going the Rob Zombie direction. And I know you've never seen any of those except for the part of the remake that I showed you. But in Halloween 2, um, well, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, the mask is kind of what gives him power, what gives him his identity. And I think that they kind of went with that concept in this as well, because what would happen in H2, and this is one of the main reasons why people don't like it, is the fact that he would walk around without the mask on. But then right before he would kill somebody, he would put the mask back on. And that was something that I actually wanted to ask you, because I haven't seen all the sequels and remakes and all 97,000 Halloween movies Ten. like you have. Well, 11 now. So 97,000. <laughs> but from watching the original, and what was the other one you showed me? You have seen the original, the second one, and the last half of Rob Zombie's remake. Okay. So even just from those, my understanding was that Michael Myers is a man, right? He's just a human man who kills people. Yeah. Like they never really go the Jason route with him where in part six, they had the Frankenstein kind of a deal. Okay. Where Tommy Jarvis from the fourth one that was played by Corey Feldman, not played by him, obviously, but the grown-up version of him goes to visit the grave of Jason, which I don't know why they would bury him that part alone, but <laughs> it's styled after an old-fashioned monster movie. Like, that was the intention okay. that the director was going for. So he accidentally revives him as a zombie <laughs> by, like, sticking a pole through his heart and lightning comes and revives him. Okay, then. But he becomes a zombie after that. There was never a point in the Halloween franchise where they did that, but because they kind of went with this supernatural element to him, because he is technically the boogeyman. It's kind of like magic realism. And see, and that's the issue that I was having, I guess. I felt like I was missing something, and apparently I was. In this particular movie, with all of the references to the boogeyman, and with that whole first sequence with the mask where they start acting like, oh yes, this mask is like the embodiment of all evil, and when he gets upset, then all of the other crazy people get upset because pure evil has come into this place. And... From my perspective, not really understanding that apparently he is now some supernatural creature. Whenever Jamie Lee Curtis was talking about like, oh, you don't believe in the boogeyman or whatever. Like, I thought that was part of her neuroses because that's in the original movie where she was talking to the kid she was babysitting about like, no, there's no such thing as a boogeyman. And then the guy comes and starts killing people. I thought that she had put that on him. 
I mean, yeah. But then they were also making it seem like he was now suddenly this magical embodiment of evil. And so I was a little bit confused with that. Well, I think that that also comes from the way that Loomis talks about him in the first couple of movies. Especially the first one, where he's just pure evil. There's something wrong with him that makes him this force. Which is why he's called the shape, because he's not really... There's no um, redemption. Right. There's not really a being under there. It's just kind of like he's the embodiment of this evil force that is controlling him to do all of these horrible things. So it's kind of a continuation of that. And, I mean, they play with it differently throughout the series. But he has, quote-unquote, died at the end of literally every single movie. And you always just, hear the breathing or something. Yeah, like, and they always kind of retcon it because, of course, they do. Which is why I thought it was, and again, major spoiler for the end. I know we're not there yet, but that's why I thought it was a smart, if not a very good decision to not show him burning in the house at the end. You see the flames engulf him, but you don't see him actually being burned to death. Like at the end of Halloween 2, remember, uh-huh. he walks out of the hallway and he's on fire that he falls down. So they never really give you that moment of, yes, he's definitively gone. Well, even like while that ending sequence was going on, like I leaned over to you, I was like, so where's the DNA testing? Like, is, <laughs> are we actually done with this now? It was a little bit convoluted and... That's why I thought that it was interesting that they borrowed that aspect of the Rob Zombie movie. Because, I mean, it's not like you can borrow any other aspects of the Rob Zombie movies. Mm -hmm. But just to begin your movie that way, that was the inciting incident, which is what it essentially was. Mm -hmm. I thought that was weird. I also thought the fact that they're going to be transporting him on Halloween night, well, the night before Halloween, excuse me, was just kind of ridiculous to me. Because you know that he's triggered by this specific event. So why would you choose to tempt fate that way? Like, I understand that the psychologist in charge of him, you know, was crazy and interested in studying him. But why would anyone in that facility allow the journalist to bring part of the crime scene to him. Like, first of all, why would they ever release the mask in the first place? Second of all, why would they allow them to bring such a triggering item to a crazy murdering madman? I have two answers to that. The first one is the fact that, and it's very brief, and you don't really get like a sense of the full scale of it because it just happens so quickly and then the quote-unquote twist is kind of cut short. But when the doctor, again, spoiler, when the doctor, the new Loomis, as they say, which he's not Loomis, and I thought that was a very pathetic excuse for a character such as that in this film. We'll get to that more later. But when he turns on the sheriff, not the sheriff, but the the deputy or whatever, and he kills him and then he drags Myers into the car or whatever, it's kind of like a throwaway line. But he says that he was basically responsible for all of the events that surrounded Michael getting loose. So he orchestrated the people coming in to show him the mask to make him want to escape. Okay, yeah, I definitely missed that. So for that to be the inception, that to be the setup as a beginning to your movie, it just seemed kind of out of place. 
Mm-hmm. And you have all of those questions, like why did they allow them to get through security with this thing in their bag? And it's weird. So just because they have an answer for it later on doesn't excuse how contrived it is right at the get-go. Yeah, it was rough. And then what I thought was really funny was the fact that all the patients are going nuts. And then in another throwaway line, like 20 minutes later, the guy says, we brought the mask and nothing happened. Ha. I was like, okay, that's... uh... Everything about those journalists was awful. Mm. Like, I was so happy when they died. I found their deaths extremely satisfying. (laughs) I really hated them. And I know you were supposed to. So they did a really good job making you hate them. So moving on from that sequence, we then see them traveling to Lori Strode's house out in the middle of nowhere, Haddonfield. And they bribe her to let them come talk to her. Because they're awful. And this is where my issues with the Laurie Strode character kind of began. And it honestly had nothing to do with Jamie Lee Curtis. I think that she did the best job that the writing and the direction that she received. Allowed her to do. Exactly. And that's not to say that, oh, well, she was limited. I'm not saying that at all. I think that she still gave a very good performance, but... She was not being supported. The character was not being supported very well. I agree with that. And it begins in this very first scene. Because while it's funny that, you know, these random people show up at her compound, basically. And the guy's just kind of like, oh, hey, we're just here to talk to you and blah, blah, blah. And trying to, like, convince her. The lady's just like, eh, just take $3,000. She's like, Buzz, come on in. You know, like, I thought that was funny. But then when they sit down with her, it's kind of like an exposition dump. It's like, what's been going on with Laurie Strode for the past 40 years? Like, it was very contrived. And I thought that was true of basically all of the writing, is that any kind of emotional moment that had any kind of weight, they explored it, and I appreciated that it it was explored, but their version of exploration was stating it clearly for the audience. Like, there's a couple of bits of dialogue between the granddaughter and Lori and the daughter that was just literally, well, you say this, and you believe this, and I like this. It was very like, I'm going to tell you about you instead of showing it, which is what they're supposed to do. But anyway, when they sit down with her, she has this beautiful moment where they're talking about her and her daughter's relationship, and they ask her like a very specific question she kind of goes silent for a minute and in her eyes oh my god that was heartbreaking you just see the 40 years like without any of the stupid exposition that they shoehorned into that scene that's all you needed and it's beautiful which is why i said that she is not the problem no not the problem at all and she elevates what she's given Oh, definitely. And like you could see that this was a very personal piece for her. But my issue comes in with the clunky exposition and how quickly that scene progresses. Because it's supposed to be an interview. And then they ask like the four dumbest questions in the world just to catch the audience up. And then she's like, okay, you can leave now. And I'm like, where's the rest of the scene? So in defense of a scene that doesn't really deserve defending, what I took that scene to be was that the douchebag 
journalists, especially the guy, they were attempting to provoke a response from her. Mm. So you can kind of excuse the exposition away because they were trying to weasel out a response from her so that they could then say, well, what we want to do is force you to come face to face with the man who killed all of your friends and tried to kill you. So that scene for me, I agree that it was clunky, but I didn't see it so much as an exposition dump as a, they are abusing this woman of her tragedy. One of my favorite moments of the movie was when they're talking to her in that scene and she's like, so a guy who killed however many people and is the psychopath is deserving of understanding? You bastards. Oh, well, we're just trying to understand him and we want to understand where he's coming from and that's what we do and we want to force you to relive all of your trauma just so we can understand this madman. And she's like, are you kidding me? And that's why she kicks them out. I thought it was a very pointed criticism of today's media. Cause that's something Jamie Lee Curtis has spoken out about too. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are we putting so much emphasis on the people killing and the people doing the shooting and not putting any emphasis on the victims of the crime who need our help? Right. And to kind of go back to a question that you asked here a minute ago, they put it in context pretty well, I think. I think this is one of the better moments is when the kids are talking about it on their way to school and they dispute the sister-brother thing and they're having kind of like a conversation that the fans will find interesting. They talk about how it's just five people. Yeah, and by today's standards, what's five people? So your question was, how did they get all this material? How are they allowed to bring it into? It kind of doesn't matter because it's a case that was solved. I mean, it's still a tragedy. Like, that's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to Haddonfield. I guess I I don't understand how law enforcement works. Like, I would still think that something that was part of a... It's about research purposes. You you don't just release crime scene items to anyone who wants them. Well, I mean, it's not really anyone. I, I think we talked about this in the theater. They never explained it, but I felt like they were... If they're just podcasters who are doing a public radio podcast where did they get three thousand dollars from and again this was not explained and if it was explained i missed it so i apologize but the way that i was kind of looking at it is the fact that they're being funded like they have like a research grant or they're part of a university that we never get to really know about because it felt weird that these independent people would be able to gather all of this information because i mean you see the girl from the investigative journalist team looking through all of the files and crime scene photos like she has literally everything in a big box in the back of their well they did say that they were award-winning and that they had done a previous piece on another murder case like that was what they do they go back to old cases and they kind of review them and take it from the killer's perspective. Mm -hmm. I find it weird that that's a thing, but I mean, that's kind of beside the point. The point of that scene to me, it was all about provoking her. It was about provoking a response and it was about making her aware of what their game was and her getting to have that moment of going, fuck you. Mm -hmm. And that's when she's like, yeah, you can leave now. I'll take my money and you can get the fuck out of my house. But my only criticism is the fact that because the writing was so poor that I felt like five minutes of actual dialogue between these people was cut out just so that you would get the gist of the scene that much quicker. And I think that that was a problem that I had throughout the entire movie was that it felt like there was a lot missing. Mm -hmm. It felt like they introduced a lot of things that they then just kind of let lie. 
that was my my main feeling leaving the theater where I was like, okay, so what else? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm looking at the IMDb page right now, and the writing credits for the screenplay were shared by three people. One of them is the director, David Gordon Green, uh, Danny McBride, and then Jeff Fradley or Fradley. So transitioning to the next scene, which I thought was pretty well handled. Everything between Laurie Strode and the granddaughter I thought was very well handled. Even if at points they kind of spoke to each other in this stilted kind of expositional way. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you and you're going to tell me what's wrong with me. I felt like their relationship was explored in a way that was very clear. They had their own kind of private, secret, personal relationship outside of the relationship that number one, her mother wanted her to have with her grandmother. Yeah. And two, even knew about. She gives her the $3,000 that she got from the quote-unquote interview. It made me laugh when the granddaughter was like, oh, I'll use this for college or whatever. And she was like, no, 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 no. I want you to experience the world. I want you to do what I never got to do because I have this obsession. Just a, a quick note about that before we continue. Having recently rewatched the original, nothing stuck out to me more than the idea that it was all about obsession. Oh, absolutely. In this one, the same is true, but to a lesser degree. And in some cases, that's okay. But in some cases, wherein the quote-unquote motivation of Michael Myers it gets a little bit muddy. I mean, his motive, like why he's doing it. The impetus to kill. Right. We don't explore that. And that's fine. That's where he gets his mystique. But as far as what his plan was, from the time that he saw her walk up to his door, he was on her tail. So everything that he did from that point forward was his obsession with her. That's the way that I look at it. So there's obviously other interpretations. And if you guys want to talk about it, believe me, that's my favorite thing to do. So don't take this as this is the only way that I'm ever going to look at it, but this is the way that I choose to look at it because of the history that I personally have with this movie and this franchise. But I feel like when it came to the Laurie Strode character in this, They did a very good job establishing that obsession. They didn't pay off for it, which we'll get into. Yeah. But with his character, they kind of just made him this, I don't want to say mindless, but he was just kind of like a killing machine. Yeah, this time around, I had a problem with the fact that he was just kind of doing it because he could. He had moments where at first I was like, okay, so every time he wants something, he's killing. And then they kept throwing something in. Also, here's another weird question that you may or may not have an answer for. I thought it was weird when he killed the kid in the car. Maybe this is something that I just put on him. But I thought one of his things was that he didn't kill kids, like kid kids. Well, I mean... To be fair, in movies four and five, he's trying to kill Jamie Lloyd, which she's like nine. Oh, okay. So technically in like the first two, sure, but historically throughout the franchise, that's kind of been, eh, And he he also actively passed over that baby. Yeah, I mean, well, it can't do anything. Again, if he's a mindless killing machine, then why wouldn't he kill it? It's making noise. And that's kind of, once again, another (laughs) allusion to the Rob Zombie movie. Because remember, he doesn't kill the Laurie Strode baby character. Mm -hmm. So I guess we can talk about that now. I think that in a lot of respects, they did a very good job alluding to the history of the franchise. And it was good fan service. 
Like, it wasn't just like the, hey, look at this. We're doing this again. Like, it was very pointed, and it made sense within the world that they created. I felt like I missed a lot of that. I think I caught all of the ones that were to the original movie, but it was sold-out theater. And I kept hearing people go, oh, or yeah, <laughs> at really weird moments. And I'm like, okay, obviously that was a callback that I totally missed. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a lot of very happy people as they were catching all the little Easter eggs. I had no complaints. Like, it felt very natural. I caught the classroom. I caught the scar thing. I caught him walking through the laundry. I caught the her coming in through the darkness at the end, like up behind him, mm -hmm. and him pushing her off the roof, and then she was gone. That was the most obvious one, I think. <laughs> but the ones I caught, I was very proud of myself for catching. I think that a lot of, and it doesn't excuse it, but it explains it, the fact that he was just kind of ran paging speaks to the fact that he knows that he doesn't have all that much time that's true like in the original yeah he escapes but only loomis knows that he's a real danger but in this one everyone's looking for him or at least everyone should be looking for him which we find out that they kind of gently prod the police into making it a priority but in the original, you know, it was just some guy who escaped a mental institution. That's scary in and of itself, obviously. But it wasn't, like, imperative that we get this guy and we bring him back. But now it is. So he knows that as soon as they find the bus, as soon as they find him missing, as soon as they find the kid and his dad that he killed to get the car, they're going to start piecing this together. And he only has a limited time. It still felt rushed. It still felt like his motive <clears throat> for who he killed when and why didn't really match his character, in my opinion, in the original. But at least I understand that he's coming from a place of, oh crap, I need to hurry up and get this done. Mm -hmm. Another moment I really liked, was he the deputy, the guy from the original? He was one of like the lieutenant the sergeants. The cop that was from the original movie. That you never saw, but yeah. I really loved the moment where he walks in the house for uh, Lori's granddaughter's friend, and the body has the ghost mm -hmm. thing on, which already, thanks for the call back there. And her boyfriend is... Is the, skewered. Uh -huh. But I loved the guy's face as he was walking up. He's like, fuck, not again. Uh -huh. That was a great acting moment for him where he did not want to walk up there. He did not <laughs> want to He did not want to remove that sheet. He knew exactly what was coming and he's like, I don't want to do this again. So there was some really good acting in this movie. Well, that's Will Patton for you. So. Yeah, he was great. Oh, yeah. And Judy Greer, I've never, Judy Greer has never been bad in anything she has ever been in in her entire career, I swear to God. But let us talk about that. Let's okay. talk about her character because Ooh. she, she was good. Can we agree to that, that she was good with what she was given? She did her Judy Greer best. But her character was bullshit. And I know that a lot of people, I know that specifically a couple of people that I <clears throat> listened to last night after we saw the movie were not as hip on her as an actress slash the character as we might be. But she chooses these weird nothing roles. And... If you've ever seen her in an actual movie that she's like one of the main stars in, you get a sense of her acting talent. But whenever she chooses like these basically walk-on roles, because let's be honest, there was so much in this movie and there were so many characters that we had to follow that she didn't really get any kind of time or development really. A lot of what made her and Lori's relationship <clears throat> work was in the dialogue in like the forced we're mother and daughter and like that line where she's throwing her out of the house she's like 
the world is not hate and killing. It's, it's about it's love. love and oh god. She was just kind of a nothing character. And you would think that because this is supposed to be a very women-centric type of movie that they would have beefed her up a little bit. But like I said, because we're following Lori, we're following the journalists, we're following the new Loomis, we're following her granddaughter, her daughter, her, it just, there was so much. And there was a lot of Michael Myers in this, which was not necessarily a bad thing, but they treated him like a character and not the embodiment of evil, the shape, the force that he's supposed to be. So he gets a lot of screen time, which again, like I said, is, is not a bad thing. It was just unbalanced. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of time that he gets versus Lori, that was concerning to me. I would agree with that. And I know that he's the major draw and he's always kind of been the major draw. Like when they released Halloween 3, <clears throat> he wasn't in it at all. And everyone was like, no, we want Michael Myers. He's the franchise and we're not going to watch it unless he comes back or whatever. So I get that. But just how much screen time he received over the people who were supposed to be the people that we were rooting for, that we cared about, was really uneven. Well, I did think it was ironic that they had that moment about talking about who's more important, the victim or the uh, aggressor, and then they spend the entire movie on the aggressor. The mother character was important to the movie, but her husband, however... Could have died at within the first two minutes and nothing in the movie would have changed. Because we, we talked about this a little bit last night after we saw it. It would have been okay if she was a single mom. It would have been okay if she was, like, dating somebody. But to have another extraneous character that we're supposed to, they never give us a reason to care about him. But he does die. Again, spoiler. But he does die at the end, and ain't nobody <clears throat> fucking give a shit. No. She's just like, oh, is he dead? And they never even answer the goddamn question. They do a somewhat okay job, even if it's stilted, in letting you know what Lori's been through for the past 40 years. And then you kind of get a little bit of it with, the Judy Greer character's childhood. But then after that, you don't really understand where she's coming from, what she did, how she became the person that she was, because she's obviously rebelling against her mom's concern and obsession with making sure that she can defend herself in this or whatever. So she lives her life in a way that's kind of like flouncy-trouncy. I'm not going to lock the doors and the windows. We live in Haddonfield. Nothing bad ever happens here. I'm a therapist. Right, but... If they would have delved into the fact that maybe her rebellion wasn't so happy sunshine and rainbows initially, that when she was put into the system after she left her mother, that maybe she got knocked up when she was 18. She talks briefly about, like, I've spent my entire life learning to deprogram myself from everything that she tried to teach me and, mm -hmm. and the paranoia and trying to get over everything that she forced on me when I was a kid. Also, next time we watch this movie, drinking game, every time Judy Greer looks off in the distance and goes, that was my childhood, or <laughs> welcome to my childhood, you have to chug, because that <laughs> happened like 17 times. It was beautiful. Once again, the writing being very... On the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's talk more about the granddaughter. I'm aligned with a lot of the critics that did like her and did like what small bit of character that they showed us of her. She was adorable. But, and here's the big but, and this is what transitions from the mom situation. 
Okay, so we have Laurie Strode, who is this badass survivalist because that's the way that she's had to teach herself to be because she, in the original, did everything that she knew to do and it just wasn't enough. So now she's literally doing everything she can to be prepared. To her daughter, which is the Judy Greer character, being part of that for the first 12 years of her life and then she gets whisked away to foster care and then she turns into this flouncy-trouncy, happy, sunshine and rainbow therapist lady who just disregards her mom. But when it comes to the daughter, and again, with everything being so on the nose, I thought that they would definitely say or explore this in some way, and they never really did. But because she was raised by her mom, her inability to take care of herself should have been a detractor. Mm-hmm. Like, it should have been the parallel between the Laurie Strode of 1978 and the... I forget what her name was. I have no idea what the granddaughter's name was. But the the granddaughter of 2018. Allison. Allison. Okay, I knew it was an A. I thought it was Amy or something. But that's where I thought they were going to go. And I was hoping and praying from the time that she talked to her blonde babysitter friend that we were going to have kind of like a little mini quote-unquote remake, rehash of the original movie. Mm-hmm. And it never really happened that way, which it's a difficult thing to remake or rehash within the sequel reboot of your franchise. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was a good call not to do it so on the nose as everything else was in the movie, because if everything else was that way, then they really would have hung a lantern on it if they would have done it. Oh, yeah. But when she does encounter Michael Myers, it turns into just kind of like, oh, she randomly just kind of walked into a situation that involved him. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about obsession. Is that, yes, Michael in most cases has motive. Like he needs the car so he kills the dad and the kid. He needs the knife so he bludgeons that woman to death. And you can follow the logic a little bit, and it's fine. Some of them don't do that, and again, that's also fine. I get that that was kind of a criticism of the original, and they even say it in this. Oh, he only killed five people, so now the body count's going to be bigger, and plus it's 2018, the body count has to be bigger. But it never really felt like he was on a mission for her. And I don't think that that was the intention. But it was very distracting to me that their reunion their little revenge fight especially at the end happened by kind of happenstance like it was something that she was actively pursuing Mm -hmm. because she was at all the crime scenes and she was trying to piece together the clues that the sheriff's office was trying to piece together and she made herself known to the will Patton lieutenant sergeant guy and she had the police radio on her car so she was actively doing it But then again, he was just kind of bopping around, you know? But to me, seeing how tight the original was with his motivation as far as his game plan, Mm -hmm. there was none of that in this. So it felt off kilter with the original, which was what it was trying to succeed. And now he's just kind of just randomly killing folks, sometimes for a purpose, sometimes just because they're there. Like, it was very uneven in that I was just hoping for a much stronger tie between the women of the movie. Yeah. And that's why the ending, while I was more satisfied by the ending than you were, (laughs) I enjoyed 
that you actually got to see some ass kicking mm. at the end after a movie of not a lot of that. But I was really hoping for a moment between the three of them. And you kind of got it a little bit as they're forcing him into the basement. But I wanted something with the tying of the three women. Or of like, maybe Michael gets a hold of Lori and she, at this point, is weak and she can't break free. So then her daughter and granddaughter come and beat the shit out of him. Mm -hmm. Like, I wanted something where they rise up to give her something. Right. And you never really get that. You get it a little bit where the granddaughter grabs the knife. Well, they make gestures towards her. Yeah. She doesn't drop the fucking knife. And that's the last shot of the movie besides the burning house. But Her holding the her knife. Her holding the knife. The granddaughter. So. But again, that's Bounce. more of a, well, it was criticized in the original, <laughs> so we're going to show you that they're not dumb this time. And that maybe, going back to what I was saying. There's Bindigo, hope for the future. Right. There's hope that this new granddaughter character is going to have the best of both worlds where she'll be able to cope much better than Lori was able to cope, but she's also badass enough to kick some ass when she needs to. And I just felt like that evolution, while it was present, just like a lot of the, the themes a lot were of the present, themes. it was never really explored and it was never really given its due in the movie because and we spent way too much time with her goofy little love triangle. That was weird. What the fuck was that? And useless. Like, they build up to this big... Halloween dance where they go as like the the goofy switched Bonnie and Clyde and then he kisses a girl and he throws her phone in the, the pudding. pudding. What I got from it was that <laughs> they were trying for that kind of easy teen back and forth dialogue that you get in the original. And they got it and, in the first walking scene. Exactly. And the rest of it you was got just... it in the first walking scene but the rest of it <laughs> fell flat as opposed to in the original movie which was obviously... There was some dialogue written by a woman there mm -hmm. for teenage girls where you find that easy back and forth and they were trying for that and just failed like they couldn't have failed harder if they actively were trying to fail. Mm -hmm. It was weird because I liked the friends. Like I thought that it was overbloated like I was saying with characters like we were just following way too many threads of story. But because they didn't draw any parallels to the original with her being, quote-unquote, the new Laurie Strode, it fell flat for me because they were inconsequential at that point. And maybe I was spoiled by the original in that every time that they kind of highlighted small details, those details would come back in the deaths of each of these characters. Mm -hmm. But, like, the one jackass friend with the chapstick, I was positive that that chapstick was going to, like, come rolling down and she's going to be like, oh, chapstick, and looks up and sees the body. Or, like... The friend with the uh, the explosions. Yeah. And then you hear all these fireworks go off and she turns the corner and there's his body. They kept giving you these little details about these characters that I was like, well, obviously that's going to come back in their deaths. Like in the original. Mm -hmm. And it, they never did it. Along with everything else. You kept having these great little details and these great little moments and these great little parts of the movie where I'm like, yes, I'm watching this movie. And nothing ever paid off. I feel like a director's cut of this would be welcome, especially to get to know what the original intended ending was that they had to basically lop off at the knees and hurry up and reshoot before they brought it out to premiere at like the film festival. Yeah, and, and that stuff. was something that I learned today. I was texting with a coworker because they really enjoyed the movie, like really, really enjoyed the movie. And just real quick, we enjoyed it too. The fact that we're spending all this time kind of dissecting it does not equal that we hated it in any way. I enjoyed myself. Like, it was a good time. But as you think about it, 
it falls apart in ways that the original just doesn't fall apart. And I think that it just goes back down to it was overbloated. But anyway, well, as we were saying. Well, let's sidestep for a second because I think that's a good point that we need to make. Because it's it's something about us in general. And as we continue to make things like this, something that's important to know about us. Just because we criticize things and just because we nitpick the fuck out of them doesn't mean that we didn't enjoy them. Doesn't mean that we weren't glad that we saw it or glad that we did it. Unless we say that we weren't. Unless we actively <laughs> say this was an absolute waste of time. The reason we do all these things is because we enjoyed it and because we liked it. Because if it was so bad that we hated it, we would have nothing to talk about. But that's something that is very near and dear to my heart that I learned when I was fairly young in my my artistic education. You can like something and be hypercritical of it. It doesn't mean that the thing was bad. It doesn't mean that you disliked the thing. It just means that you were seeing it for its entirety and not as something that was wholly good or wholly bad. And if you do see it that way, that's perfectly fine. Like, if you just enjoy it because you enjoyed it, yeah. you don't want to think too, too much into it, and you don't have to. That's not something that, unless you're willing to do it, that makes you a bad moviegoer oh, no. or a bad Absolutely fan. Not. Or I think that we are both naturally critics. Yeah. I've always had a naturally critical eye, and I think that you, especially with movies that you care about and franchises that you care about, it's because you care about them and because you have the wealth of knowledge of the entire past project that you want to nitpick it because it's important. I think that's important to know about us going forward as we continue to make these things. So I was texting with a coworker this morning who had been telling me how good the movie was and they actually told me, as soon as you leave the movie theater, text me. <laughs> like, you need to tell me how you liked this movie. When I gave them kind of that criticism that I felt like it was a little inconsistent, they were like, oh yeah, that was probably because they had to do all these reshoots because the test audience hated it. And I was like, wait, what? I somehow missed this part of it that apparently they ran a different movie for a test audience and it was not well received. That's one of mm. the earmarks of the, I'm going to say this wrong and I am so sorry, the Akkad company. That's the producer. You saw Malik Akkad at the yeah. beginning. Originally it was Mustafa, which was his father. But they love test audiences. For almost every single Halloween movie, I think after four, they might have done it for four, I don't remember, but definitely five and six. <clears throat> they love test audiences. So even that pays homage to the rest of the series, that they felt like that was a integral part of their process with the movie. Okay. I See, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> what made me laugh, thinking back on it, is that, yeah, there was a lot, but there was also a lot that they obviously cut. So it concerns me that maybe their judgment wasn't as good about what to keep and what to toss mm -hmm. as it should have been or could have been. Because it felt like they were like giving us the Cliff's Notes version of each of these plot threads. Do you want to hear about the Laurie Strode character? Okay, we'll give you the A to Z in less than five minutes because we shot all of this footage and we have to give you some kind of something to watch so instead of making each scene bring something important to the movie we just have to make sure that each scene furthers somebody's plot somewhere somehow i don't even think that they did that very well in some cases like the goofy little scene after he kills the doctor and then it's the two cops down the road 
talking about their lunches for five minutes. <clears throat> is there nothing else that we could be doing with this time? Mm-hmm. Just like with the, the dumb Halloween dance. Is there nothing else that we can be doing with this time? Like, I don't get that. I think the most frustrating part of the movie for me, besides the fact that all of these plot threads just kind of happened and then didn't go anywhere, was the fact that they really, really skipped on the granddaughter's storyline as far as her and her friends. And I get why they did that. Because the movie really wasn't about them and they didn't want to make it seem like it was about them. Like it was a the new generation of Michael Myers. Babysitter murders. Right, exactly. They didn't want to draw that exact parallel. I thought that that would be a good idea, but I wasn't the one writing the movie. With the movie that we received, there should have been at least something that alluded to 1978 with those characters. Mm-hmm. And besides them all being murdered by Michael Myers, that was about it. Like, there was no story parallels, and all the deaths just felt arbitrary. Like, how the fuck did he get in that house with the babysitter? I know that they're playing on the boogeyman in the closet stereotype. I get that. And it's a cool sequence. Again, I enjoyed what they presented to me. But then when you take a step back and you think about it for a second, you're like, how the fuck did he get in there? And how did no one know? They were too busy making out. And just the fact that we spend, I would say, about a good half hour, not consecutively, but a good half hour of the hour and, what, 45 minutes it was, with the new crop of kids, and it doesn't mean anything or go anywhere, it was insulting. Like, I would have rather Mm -hmm. it just have been about Laurie Strode. Mm-hmm. All alone. I think that the thing that we, we need to talk about next is the doctor. Fuck him. Because you told me about 20 minutes in. No, it was before that. Like, I told you (laughs) within the first two minutes what I thought was going to happen. And, of course, he double-crosses the Lieutenant Sergeant Will Patton character. I was so angry (sighs) that they didn't do anything with him. I was so mad. It spoke to a greater point that I appreciated. But, again, you could have given me that point in a much smarter way. He's a science experiment. And again, when you stack him up against Dahmer and Bundy and all these illicit serial killers that everyone loves to piece into their backgrounds and all of the deaths that they've accrued and all of this shit, he's kind of tame. So even though they know that he is a major threat, they underestimate him because he only killed five people. I know the doctor's supposed to be crazy, but I think that that kind of entered into his mind. He's like, if I let this guy free, yeah, he's going to kill people. But it's not going to be a big deal, mm-hmm. which was, again, the point of his demise was that he underestimated him. But they played this weird little game with him that was like, he wants to be Michael Myers, but he also wants to study him. It was convoluted. Well, it wasn't that he wanted to be him. It was that he became so obsessed with him that he wanted to experience him from every angle, which included killing someone because he was always trying to provoke a response. Specifically, a verbal response from Michael Myers. Which I thought that was kind of dumb in the first place because he's never spoken except for in the Rob Zombie Halloween 2. He was very concerned with that. And I just thought that was weird for a character that has historically never spoken anything. that, That was kind of the point though, wasn't it? Was that this doctor, he was like, I'll be the one who does it. Right, but why was that important at all? Because he should speak. Like, he needed him to do that. He needed to get a response from him. 
I thought it was a little bit untethered. It was just kind of like this weird little motivation of his that didn't really come from anywhere. They mentioned it in the original that he stopped talking after he killed his sister and he hasn't spoken a word in however many years and blah blah blah. But that's never really been a big concern with the films as far as I was ever aware. Just because he says a word or two mm -hmm. doesn't really explain to you anything more about him. But isn't that the point of obsession is that you become fixated on certain details? I felt like every other character had a great point about obsession <clears throat> except for the character that we spend collectively about an hour with. Again, like I said, Michael Myers is in it a lot. And that was, I guess, the biggest failing because they did a lot right with his character. Mm -hmm. From the way that he moved, to the way that he breathed, the mask is wonderful, and the way that they portrayed him was very well handled. But coming from my perspective on the original film, him following and stalking and killing because he has a game plan, he, he has a point to prove to him just aimlessly walking around it was weird it didn't feel like connective tissue it felt like a big criticism of the original as well as other films in the franchise is that there's not enough death so let's put more death in there because it's 2018 and we need to and with the new loomis character there wasn't enough parallels there wasn't enough intrigue he didn't contribute enough to the movie to really be called that, you know? Mm -hmm. And his twist, while it explained away a lot of the weird inconsistencies toward the front of the movie, ultimately, because the film was so bloated with characters, he never got a chance to actually develop as a person within that world, the same way that Donald Pleasance did with the Loomis character. Yeah. Even just in the first one, like I know he was with the franchise for forever, but even in the first one, you get a really big glimpse of who he is, what he's like, how he thinks, and all this kind of stuff. Which is a good contrast against Michael because you have no idea what the hell he's doing. I felt like his presence was greatly missed in this movie. And they tried with the voiceover that she was listening to on the old tapes where he was talking about Michael. And I think that the guy that they got to duplicate his voice was good. The meter in which he spoke was a little bit off, I thought. Mm. The more exaggerated that the impression became, the more true to life it was. But like when he was just calmly talking, it felt a little bit stilted to me. But then again, that's what happens when the person that you need to say that dialogue has been dead for 20 some odd years. So you get what you kind of get. And I appreciate that they at least attempted to put him in here somewhere. So the guy who did Loomis, his name is Colin Mahan, and he is a celebrity impersonator. Cool. So that is his job. It really wasn't Donald Pleasance, but he's not Donald Pleasance, so why would you expect that? He mostly does sound-alike voices for video games. Just thought you might find that interesting. All the connective tissue was missing. I think that's mm -hmm. the best way to kind of put it, is that because we had so many people to focus on and so many scenes to get to, and so many kills to get to and so much Michael Myers to kind of watch and study, basically. All of the relationships really suffered. Mm -hmm. This was a failing of the script because they tried. Never once did I really feel that any history had come between the Judy Greer daughter and Laurie Strode. Yeah. Every time that it came up, it was forced and it was dialogue heavy. But besides the attempt of both actresses to kind of bridge the divide, it's almost like, grab my hand, I'm falling off the cliff, and it just barely missed each other. Like, it just, it never happened. It never materialized. So, any more comments from you about, like, the first half before he gets to the Lori Stroke compound? No, I mean, I think that pretty much covers it. And you even said that you really like the interviewer's deaths. 
I found them very satisfying. <laughs> just because I hated them both. I did finally realize where I knew the guy from, though. Okay. It's actually something that I reference in uh, other podcasts as well. But the best Emma with um, Romola Gray and Johnny Lee Miller. <laughs> that was made in 2009. Like the best ever Jane Austen adaptation. He played the love interest of... Okay, well, you know Clueless. So let me reference this for you. You know, girl who died from Clueless. Brittany Murphy? Brittany Murphy's love interest in that movie. Okay. That's who he played in the Emma. Oh, okay. He played the farmer. Okay. All right, I gotcha. So that you know who he is. That's, yeah. So I I was like, I know I know your face from somewhere. And even that was kind of a a repeat of in Halloween 20 years later, where one of the characters stops at a gas station and gets killed, and plus the gas station kill in the Rob Zombie Mm. movie. And then the, him taking the overalls from the mechanic is also a reference to number four. I think it's four (laughs) as well. So, I mean, all the references were were very well laid out. And I think that in a lot of cases, it was the best we've seen of them for a while. The kill that they always love to replicate, and we talk about this in our Halloween 1978 commentary, was the one where they hang people up and they they stab them through and their their feet are dangling and whatever. They did that like twice. So did you, this is another weird reference that they made, but did you catch the Voyagers playing in the background? Mm -hmm. Do you even know what Voyagers is? It's my personal favorite show from the 80s. It lasted a single season and it was about a pirate from pirate times Mm -hmm. and a boy from the 80s who traveled through time and fixed things together. Okay, I'm going to have to show this to you later. It's the weirdest, best show ever. And if I remember correctly, the reason it was only, like, one season is that the main guy, the guy who played, like, the pirate, mm-hmm. was playing with a gun on set, like, a fake gun, and it was actually, like, real and loaded, and he, like, shot himself in the head. Jesus. It was something like that, where it was, like, <laughs> a really dumb death. Wow. But yeah, so that was playing in one of the houses as someone was getting murdered. And I saw that I was like, what the hell was that? What? <laughs> Why but is that there? It made me extremely happy. So <laughs> anyway. The ending was probably the best part of the movie because she got a chance to stalk him for once. The predator becomes the prey. I think that the stalking aspect of his character was sorely missed. And for this movie, I understood it, but it still doesn't excuse the fact that they did not utilize a huge chunk of what made his character threatening in the original movie. Not only is he just going to come up there and he's going to do what he's going to do to you, and there's nothing you can do to stop him, but also he's going to follow you and make you feel like you're trapped. Even without you knowing it, he's basically narrowing the field so that he can get you in that specific location. And that was not present at all. It had like a couple moments where he was outsmarting people, like after the stupid cops are talking about their lunches and they go up to the car, <clears throat> but then the car <clears throat> that they were driving winds up at Lori Strode's house and it lures the dad outside and he opens the door and one of them's in there with his neck slit and the other guy's head in his lap with the jack-o'-lantern with a flashlight. Like, I thought that that was well played, you know? He also, in the original movie, tended to make tableaus of all of his bodies, so... Mm -hmm. And that was another aspect that they did bring into this one as well. So, I think that they did a pretty upstanding job when it came to Michael Myers. We just saw him a lot. Yeah. That's my only gripe, is that because they relinquished the stalking aspect of his character, we were basically tracking shotting him the entire way. Which took out some of the mystique. I don't think that they did a good job showing any kind of battle scars that she was receiving. 
but he bashes her head against the door and she has like a small like wound on her forehead for the rest of the thing. Yeah. It was a little bit weird. As far as everything else was concerned, I didn't like the up and down in and out of the um basement cage mm-hmm. trap thing. It got kind of tedious after a while where it was like upstairs and downstairs well, and upstairs and downstairs were... and upstairs and downstairs. While I liked that you finally got to see how she tricked out her house to make it no longer a scary place, this was another instance for me where I felt like I was missing a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because in addition to Judy Greer's Karen going, this was my childhood. This was my childhood. Welcome to my childhood. <laughs> you also got a lot of Lori saying, Karen, this is not a cage. 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 And you're like, God damn it. I understand. It's not a cage. And then finally they pay off the line at the end where it's a trap. Uh-huh. And it's like, okay, fair enough the payoff on that line. <laughs> but also you kept hearing about the childhood and you never got to see anything else about the house. I felt like... Her walking through the rooms, hitting the things, and the grates falling down were all references to something that they never introduced. I felt like you were supposed to have, like, a flashback to Judy Greer learning all of these things or Mm -hmm. something, and you never got anything out of it. So while I loved it, and it was really cool, and I'm like, yeah, that's right, you going upstairs and you shutting off each room, and you're checking the closets first, and, like doing all the things that she didn't do at the beginning. But also, it bothered me because then her daughter is just like, I'm so scared, (laughs) not doing anything. But she uses that to her advantage towards the end, though. It's true. Talk about, like, a moment that they spent about two minutes on that they could have probably cut and then given to something else was the two closets. Mm -hmm. Like, I really liked the closet upstairs with the mannequins. Like, that was the best scene. Oh, it was horrible. That was the scene that had me. I was like, ugh. And usually total exact darkness in movies is obnoxious. Because then it gets into the, did they just not light it well? Did they run out of time or budget? You know, like, you feel like there's something wrong. But that was the kind of darkness that aided the scene. And it wasn't just kind of like, why did it get so dark? And I love that they didn't mess up any of that ending sequence with additional music. I liked that it was pure silence. And Mm -hmm. I loved that our audience completely embraced that silence and was silent too. Yeah. We had a great audience. Mm -hmm. They knew when to use their creative music. Mm -hmm. And also, music in the movie, fantastic. Well, that was by John Carpenter. Yeah. He he came back with his son and they updated the score. I loved the awkward or the creepy change to the Halloween theme when she finds out that he's free again. Mm -hmm. Like, they, again, really well-scored movie. It was fantastic. That was one of the better parts of the movie for me. It made you feel like you were in a Halloween movie again. And it's not really a complaint. It's more of just something that I noticed, is that once he's there and once he's fighting her, it does turn into a parallel from the original, where she goes upstairs, have the balcony room with the balcony open. That's why she tries the closet first, and then he comes popping out of the exact last place that you would think he would come popping out of and he pushes her out onto the balcony and over the balcony and you have like that moment of oh no it's just like the first time only reversed then the moment with her coming out of the shadows oh oh happy halloween (laughs) michael (laughs) and pushing his ass down the stairs while stabbing his ass down the stairs amid the fuck yeah but 
This is where my take on the original did not pay off, and it bothered me a little bit. This is not a perfect ending. I know that this is an ending that a lot of people will still have an issue with, but from a finishing a thematic thread kind of a place, mm -hmm. I think that this is fitting, even if it's not the best that we could have gotten. So the Judy Greer character comes up the ladder last and he grabs onto her and they're stabbing him and punching him and stuff like that to get him back down and get her out of the thing before they trap him in there. I wish that would have been reversed and that would have been Lori, oh, but he manages to trap her in there with oh, him. Yes. And she has to burn with him. I love that idea. It's still not perfect, but that's the ultimate obsession. It kills you both. Right. And also the fact that she would have to tell her daughter is that I need you to do this for me. Mm -hmm. There is no other way. And that was the problem that I had with the ending was the fact that it felt very evil villainy. I'm going to tie you up to the train tracks and then walk away and never make sure that you're actually dead. Mm -hmm. It plays on the fact that she spent a lot of her time in life building this place and making sure that it was the perfect trap for him. But at the end of the day, you never know. And isn't that kind of the worst part of the ending, though? Is that because she survived, she's never going to believe he's dead. Yeah, but we leave the movie at the same place, basically, that we begin it. Mm -hmm. With Laurie Strode not believing that it's over. Well, she did say that she would be willing to do another one if the same director came back. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. And that, that bothers me, too. It wasn't the resolution that... It deserved. It deserved, that that character deserved. Because I'm cool with her surviving it. Yeah. Because I love the idea of, like, yeah, she conquered her demon, literally, and she can come through to the other side. But because of the fact that we all knew that they couldn't just let him die, mm. they couldn't let this franchise die, that character is never going to get the resolution she deserves. And that fucking sucks to me. After all that, she's never going to get the help she needs. And I felt that with all of the talk that you had before the movie about, like, oh yeah, we're going to find out what happened to this character and see what trauma does to a person, it bothered me deeply that everyone was so callous to her. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was the point that they were trying to yeah. make. And I get that the daughter was traumatized by her mother, so she couldn't really have a lot of compassion to her. But no one in this movie was like... Besides the granddaughter, but even the granddaughter... Even the granddaughter... Well, the granddaughter later. fully told her to get over herself. Yeah. But no one was compassionate. No one bothered to be like, okay, well, obviously you've been through trauma, so maybe we won't keep bringing this up. And again, I guess that was the point that they were making is that this victim, no one cared about her. And that's mm -hmm. why she became what she became. But it bothered me that still, through the ending, no one cared. And I was waiting for that resolution too, even for her daughter to acknowledge that maybe this was real. And even as it was happening, her daughter never acknowledges that. She's just like, oh, well, I'm freaked out. And you never see that moment of like, yeah, I had a reason for doing this, and now you see why. It very much was a love letter to the fans and to the franchise, which I appreciated because... You are that audience member that they were writing that love letter to. Right, is that you follow something for so long, and then people just shit on it, and then you come across something like this where... They really did care. Even with all of the flaws that we've been very blatantly pointing out this entire time, I never felt like they didn't care. Mm -hmm. And with a lot of horror movie reboots, even with just reboots in general, a lot of horror movies that aren't reboots, in some cases you just feel like they just don't care. Like they're just trying to make a quick dollar because this is the easiest, cheapest, 
quickest film to kind of throw out there and make. It'll scare someone some way, somehow, or at least it'll make a couple of bucks and then we put it on DVD and it makes more money and then it's over and, we, and we're on to the next one. If anything, I think that a lot of the flaws came from them caring too much. Yeah. Like they were trying to put too much information and they were trying to give too many people too many things that they asked for. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you ended up with seven different stories in set one. It was definitely very fanboy because there were so many references. The people who wrote this movie were like, I want to add this and we want to add this and we want to put this in and I also want to do this. Oh, and can we do this? There was a lot of fan fiction-y stuff going on in there. I didn't feel like this was a product. I thought that it was a very flawed passion project. Yeah, it was definitely a passion project. Absolutely. Was it a perfect Halloween movie? No. Was it a good follow-up to the original? In some aspects, sure. Was it a good sequel in general in the franchise? Oh, definitely. Oh my fucking god, we've had some suck in the franchise. But as a movie, they wanted to put so much into it and I appreciate the excitement, but it just didn't amount to anything. Mm -hmm. It didn't pay off in any big way besides being a successful love letter to the people who have followed this franchise from 1978 until now. Were you ultimately disappointed or were you satisfied? In the pantheon of the Halloween franchise, it was fine. But as a movie, yes, I was disappointed. I'm glad that I saw it. Do I need to run out and see it again? No, I really don't. Okay. But I will see it again. I, I will make a point to see it again. But is it something that is going to go into my collection for forever and be my favorite? No. I was prepared to love it, but I was also prepared to look at it critically, critically and analyze it and be realistic. So should you go see the new Halloween? Yeah. It was fun. Like I had a good time. And with horror movies especially new ones, that's saying something. Because horror movies nowadays either fall into the they suck so bad that why the fuck was that even made? Or the wow, that was really cerebral. I'm going to have to think about that for a while. And to have something that you could enjoy without feeling like you were being talked down to, that was nice. And as someone who's not a horror movie connoisseur like you, and also not someone who's really familiar with the Halloween franchise as a whole, I think that I probably enjoyed it a little bit more than you just because I didn't have all of the weight of the franchise resting on it. Because mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of horror movies that I can come out of saying like, yeah, like I actually like watch watched all of it without hiding and coming home and being like, well, I need to get that out of my head. Mm -hmm. Like I really enjoyed actually watching the movie. And I enjoyed actually having some of the knowledge of the background and getting to see some of the callbacks. It was fun for me for once to actually feel like I was in on the joke, which was nice. I really enjoyed it. I had fun watching a horror movie in a movie theater for once. I left the movie very satisfied with having seen it, despite the fact that obviously I had criticisms, but if you're not like super into horror movies, this is probably a good one for you. There's not a lot of like gross imagery going on. There's a lot of creepy intention, which I think is something that the Halloween movies are known for. While you didn't get as much of it in this movie as you did in the first one. And I mean, in that respect, does it stack up against the original? Not really. 
it's not really a bad thing. I think that they did as best as they could with the talent that was behind the, the movie. But if you were to marathon the original with this one, it's not so different that you're going to be confused. It's not like this major shift that all of a sudden, okay, well, now we're 40 years later and it's so different. Halloween being one of the horror movies that I would personally show someone initially. I would not be afraid to show this to a horror movie virgin like yeah. I was. I do feel something for this franchise since it was my first horror movie. I do have a certain affection for it. And I loved being able to see Laurie again. And maybe that was part of the reason that bothered me so much that no one really gave a fuck. Like, I really love that character. Mm -hmm. And I care about that character enough that I was like, why has nobody taken care of my baby? <laughs> so I think that in that respect, it does, in spirit, kind of live up to the spirit of the original in a way. Mm -hmm. One of Absolutely. my co-workers, and she hates horror movies. Like, whenever I'm watching something at work on the computer, she will literally just kind of walk away because she just doesn't like to hear and see all that kind of stuff. And even she said it was a fun time. And she was coerced into going. <laughs> it's definitely a fun time, and I think that you'll get something out of it. Are you going to feel like the other sequels that came before it have finally been fully realized and that you've been given the newest best Halloween movie? No. But if you expected that, then I'm kind of sad for you in a way. Because mm -hmm. it's never going to be the same. That movie, just like any other piece of media, is what it was because of the time period it came from, the people that it came from, all of the restraints, all of the restrictions, all of the freedom that they received during the process. You can't duplicate that. You can't <clears throat> replicate that. And if you feel like that was what they were trying to go for, then you kind of missed the point of the movie. But as a follow-up, it's fair enough. Is it the follow-up that everyone wanted? Probably not. Is it the follow-up that I wanted? Not really. But they did a damn good job, and it's a solid movie with all of its flaws. The criticism is important and I think that it's fair. Like I feel like the flaws are the flaws and the positives are the positives and it is what it is. I can't really complain that much about it ultimately because it was a very watchable movie. Yeah. It wasn't something that required a lot of effort. Like you didn't have to be super attentive to it. You didn't have to be on edge, like, ready to run to the bathroom because something gross was about to happen. It was really watchable. And it was fun. I enjoyed seeing it with a big group of people. We had a great fellow audience members who were yelling things at the screen at all the right moments and <laughs> swearing at people who kept leaving their goddamn cars. Yes, if you learn nothing else from this movie, you have to take a lesson from every horror movie you watch. And if you learn nothing else, you learn, don't leave your goddamn car. Ever. Ever. If something bad's going on, stay in your car. Just stay in it. Lock the doors. Stay in your goddamn car. The atmosphere was a little bit off in places. That's the one thing that I think is a major difference between this and the original, is that the tone is different. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was going to have to be because it's a modern sequel to a very old movie at this point. But you go from the winding tension of the original to just outright brutality, basically, the entire time. And it's a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a whole lot of tension. They had scenes that were very tension-filled, but besides that, it was just kind of, it was a very on-the-surface kind of movie. With the writing and with what they showed you, and it was competent. I would go see it again. I would tell you to go see it and form your own opinion. Good movie to bring your friends who don't like horror movies to. Yeah. 
it's a good night out. Take some friends, get some booze. And just have a good time. Yeah. Let us know what you think on Twitter. We have a Twitter. It's at idealist underscore the. And on our Instagram as well, which is just the practical idealist for our names. And you can also see some pictures from our, our last trip to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Where we got to see uh, some ninja sex party action. And the twerp zoo. and uh, planet bootay. <laughs> I mean, did you upload any <clears throat> pictures from our Foy's Yellow Springs thing? I uploaded most of those. Didn't upload a lot of zoo pictures. I need to get back on that just because okay. we've been so busy that we haven't had a chance to. I have more so. Sit down, go through a lot of the pictures I took, but mm -hmm. yeah, you can kind of see what we're up to and. I mean, at this point, we have a pretty good catalog of stuff for you to listen to. Unfortunately, last week we were supposed to have a hocus pocus commentary, and the recording didn't really go according to plan. It so happens sometimes. We'll go back and we'll do hocus pocus again at some point. Katie went to go see the, what is it, National Theater? National Theater Live's production of uh, Frankenstein starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. It was first broadcast in theaters in 2011, and they re-released it for this Halloween, and it's the uh, production where the two guys switch out on playing Frankenstein and the creature. I've already seen Benedict Cumberbatch's, and then I will be going to see Johnny Lee Miller's creature. I'm really excited about it and I recorded a little something with my dad in the car since Destry couldn't come so you'll get to hear the uh the ramblings of a man who really didn't understand what he was watching but he he had some good he had some interesting points I think and it was fun talking to my dad about it just because he he sees things so differently than I do He's not really an artistically minded guy. He's very kind of on the surface. Pragmatic. Yeah, pragmatic is a great word for my dad. <laughs> but he had some some interesting views. And I'm really curious for you to listen to some of what he said because I think that you're going to find it even more interesting than I did. We'll, we'll get some good stuff and maybe hear a little just from me. Thanks for listening. Let us know if you are listening. Yeah. <laughs> We're having fun making these, so we'll keep doing it as long as Destry doesn't go insane from editing. Yeah, yeah. It gets a little bit much at, at points, but, you know. Yeah, we're learning it, though, and we'll keep learning it. Happy Halloween. <clears throat> Happy Halloween! We're gonna we're gonna have some fun on Halloween. We're gonna do some seance type witchy stuff. I'm, we're gonna do some witchy stuff, and I don't have to work, <laughs> and neither do you, so I don't know. We're, we're gonna have some fun. And there's plenty of horror movies that you haven't seen. and Or, or maybe we should not watch a horror movie. <laughs> I think that we should watch Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, God. Because that, that's going to bridge the gap there. Because I work retail, so by the time it's actually Halloween, we're probably going to have our Christmas stuff up. It's officially Christmas in retail. But it's not Christmas yet on here, so happy Halloween. I hope you had a good October. I hope that Halloween and October was your respite and you were able to kind of get yourself built up for all of the craft that's going to be coming there, as the holidays come. There sure were a whole bunch of horror movies and spooky Halloween type movies that came out. So, yeah. I mean, we've all had plenty of stimulation as far as that's been concerned. I know that there's been years where literally like two horror movies come out and they're just crap. So... I'm glad that horror movies are becoming... Mainstream. Yeah, but in like a, a positive way, yeah. not just kind of like, let's just slap something together. I mean, there's always about two or three of those each year, but they come out in like April. So <laughs> yeah. the ones that come out during the actual season are usually the ones that deserve to come out during that mm -hmm. season. All right, guys, I think this has gone on long enough, so thanks for listening, and we will see you in the next one. Bye!